Good morning, church. I read recently about a guy who took his entire family to the Holy Land in Israel. Took his wife, his kids, as well as his in-laws. But sadly, a couple of days into the trip, their mother-in-law became ill and soon died. So the son-in-law goes to the funeral home in Jerusalem and he asks what the funeral director can do for him. He says, well, for $5,000, we can ship your mother's body back home. Or for $500, we can prepare her body and bury her right here. Well, the son-in-law thought about it and said, well, let's just pay the extra expense and we'll ship her back home. And the funeral director said, wow, are you sure? That's a lot of money. It's a big expense. I mean, we really will do a great job of providing a great funeral right here in the Holy Land. The son-in-law took the funeral director by the tie and he said, listen, 2,000 years ago, you buried a guy over here. And three days later, he rose from the dead. I can't take that chance with my mother-in-law, okay? Well, while the voracious laughter dies down in your house, I really do want to welcome you to the Easter service here this morning. If you happen to have your mother-in-law with you, give her a little elbow bump and uh, tell her that you love her. If you're thinking that the story that I've just shared is a little too far-fetched, maybe a little uh, too unbelievable to be true, I understand. I really don't have a way of determining whether it is or not, but I can assure you of this. That's not the case with the resurrection of Jesus. It is true. It is verifiably true. Yet to be honest, for many in our world, his resurrection sounds just a little too far-fetched. To them, it sounds more like fantasy than fact. And you may be among those who are skeptical. If that's true, it's my hope that by the end of today's message, minimally, you'll be led to seriously consider the evidence of the resurrection for Christ. Maybe even research it further. But my greatest desire is that you, like many of us, will put your faith and your hope in the Savior that this evidence points to. As for me, I believe. I believe the validity of the resurrection. I believe that the evidence for it points conclusively to the fact that Jesus is alive and is who he claims to be. So, let me list three statements that I believe to be true. Number one, Jesus lived. Number two, Jesus died. And number three, Jesus lives today. Now, most of you, I would assume, expect me to say that because I'm the preacher and this is Easter Sunday. But by no means am I alone in that belief. As uncommon as it may seem to believe that a man could be placed in a tomb for three days and then come out alive again, as hard that is, as that is to believe, I understand that for those of us who are in Christ, it's very common. Jesus, Jesus followers the world over historically believe that that man is alive and that he's living today. And it's based on the fact that tens of thousands of people witness with their own eyes the life of Jesus here on earth. Now, that number minimally would look similar to us today if we packed up the entire town of Kerrville and we took us to San Antonio. Now, let's just forget for the moment that social distancing is an issue. And we packed everybody into the AT&T Center where the Spurs play. And we celebrated Easter together. And on cue, Jesus walks out with a microphone and he speaks to all of us about the things of God in person. And afterwards, Jesus invites everyone who needs healing to come to it. And you watch people left and right who you know have had lifelong disabilities and, and ailments and defects uh, in their health do exactly that. And everybody's healed. Now, present, we've got engineers and housewives and teachers there. We've got bankers and cabinet makers and doctors and city councilmen and a few coaches. All of them are credible people. And it's my guess that we almost couldn't help ourselves when we got back home from telling everyone that we 
come in contact with, what we heard and what we saw. Now, that number of people all sharing the same story begins to build a pretty credible case that Jesus was there and did the miracles we claim to have seen and the words we claim to have heard. That eyewitness account builds a compelling case that Jesus lived. Well, as a matter of historic record, we also know Jesus died. And thousands of people were there in Jerusalem to witness when Jesus was brutally crucified. So imagine, if I took one-sixth of those that we packed into the AT&T Center, about 5,000 people, and we put them in Antler Stadium, and we packed out the place, both the home side and the visitor side. Jesus comes out to midfield, and some of the Roman soldiers that come that day lay him on a cross. And they raise him up, and they crucify him right there in front of all of us. Again, hundreds, if not thousands of people, see it with their own two eyes. And again, credible people. People who have no reason to lie. Folks who stand to gain nothing from it. Just solid folks. Now, no doubt, they couldn't help but go out and tell people in the community of Kerrville and Fredericksburg and Junction and Bernie what they had just witnessed. And that would build a pretty compelling case for the eyewitness testimony that Jesus really died. Now, we also know from history that hundreds, if not close to nearly a thousand people, witnessed the resurrected body of Jesus. They saw him after he rose from the dead. They touched him. They ate with him, not just for a moment, but for 50 days they hung out with him. A man by the name of Dr. Luke tells us that and records it for us in history. Now, for a visual of that, we would take one-fifth of the crowd from Antler Stadium and we'd place them in the Tyvee High School gym. I mean, we'd pack out the place, both the home side, the visitor side, when all of a sudden, Jesus comes out and talks to all of us about the fact that three days earlier, he was in a tomb. And not only had it happened, his death and his resurrection, but that all had been prophesied 700 years earlier. But he also predicted that it would happen before it actually did with the disciples who, number one, didn't like hearing it, and number two, didn't quite understand any of it. Well, if that wasn't enough, after Jesus gets to telling us about all this, he has a meet and greet. And so a line forms and he allows us to feel the scars in his hands and also in his feet, even to place our hands in the scar in his side to verify it's actually him, the guy we saw crucified in Antler Stadium just a couple of days before. Now, we would no doubt walk out of that gym telling everybody that we met what we had seen and heard. Friends, all of that actually happened in history. I just brought it into modern day events and in modern day places. My point is there's enough physical evidence and enough circumstantial evidence to back up the claim that Jesus lived and that Jesus died and that Jesus is living again. And yet, you know as well as I do, that's not enough. As a matter of fact, for one of Jesus' closest friends, it wasn't enough. A guy by the name of Thomas, John, his closest friend, tells us about an encounter that Thomas and Jesus had not many days after Jesus had been resurrected. As a matter of fact, eight days to be exact. Here's what John writes. One of the disciples, Thomas, the twin, some of your texts may say Didymus, which actually means twin, was not there at the time with the others. When they kept telling him, we've seen the Lord, he replied, I'm not believing it. Unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand in his side. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them, and the doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them and greeting them. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Put your hand here in my side. And don't be faithless any longer. Come on, believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, you believe because you've seen me. But blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe anyway. Let's pray. Father, um, we are among those who haven't seen. We have not been able to put our hands uh, on your scars. We haven't been able to put our hands in your side. Uh, we didn't see the crucifixion ourselves. We didn't see your resurrected body ourselves. But we believe. And we're not the only ones all over this town today and all over this country, all over the world. People are remembering in a very purposeful, intentional way that this is the foundation of our faith. Father, we, we concur with Paul that if, if the dead are not raised, if you're not raised, what we're doing here is foolish. It's senseless. But we do believe. And we're asking you to help our unbelief. Father, we join our prayers today uh, along with those uh, with the Barnett Chapel and the disciples that are meeting there who also are trying to place their faith and trust in you and walk in the footsteps of your son. Please unify the body of Christ the world over today and renew our faith, build our faith, and for some, spark faith uh, as the story's told one more time that changed the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Now this was supposed to have been the week of the Masters Golf Tournament. Some people mark the year with Christmas. Uh, others mark it because of their birthday. I have two markers every year in my life. Number one, my wedding anniversary. And number two, the weekend of the Masters. In 2007, I had the privilege to draw a lottery ticket to go to Augusta, Georgia and attend the Masters. I got a chance to see a practice round and then the Wednesday par three tournament. A friend of mine who loves golf, maybe as much as I do, probably a little bit more, James Hobbs went with me. So we got a chance to meet James when he and the Flying J Wranglers were here and performed on, a, on this stage that I'm actually preaching on. Well, we stayed together with a Christian family in Augusta. We played golf twice in Georgia among the dogwoods and the azaleas. It was the trip of a lifetime. We even had our own guide that got us to the seventh hole during the par three tournament on Wednesday. And I, I mean, literally got us as close to we, as we could get to the green. We were the closest people that were there. And we were 12 feet, not yards, 12 feet from the actual hole that the players uh, teed off towards to the green and then they actually put it into. We sat there while Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player, together as one group, walked up the fairway. We were there from Phil Mickelson and his kids and Rory McIlroy and Ricky Fowler and Tom Watson and 70 other top players from around the globe. And two amazing things happened while we were there. We saw Rory Sabatini make a hole-in-one 12 feet from us right there at the Masters. Couldn't believe it. It was the first hole-in-one of his entire career. And then secondly, we saw Padraig Harrington, who's won two majors, hit his tee shot literally right into the camp chair of James Hobbs who was sitting next to me. And when Padraig Harrington walks up, I jokingly made the remark, all right, you ought to play it where it lies. And he said, well, that's what we'll do. He asked for a wedge from his caddy and right there, he took the wedge and knocked the ball out of the chair onto the green, I'm not talking, inches from the hole and tapped it in with his wedge. We saw it all. And I mean, the crowd went nuts. And that was a great memory. Now, I'm telling you all that because James Hobbs and I uh, are good friends, but we got a chance to experience something that very few people ever get to see in person. And we'll never forget it. 
Not only us will never forget, but thousands of people literally uh, were there to witness that alongside us. Now, I'm, I want to know, would it matter as far as validity's sake if I hadn't shared that with you verbally, but I wrote it down and I handed it to you? Now, I know there, there's something powerful, something personal about hearing an eyewitness story from someone's own lips. But would it take away from the credibility of its validity to be true? You weren't there to see it. So let's say you question that it actually happened. Maybe you actually say, well, Jimmy, great story, but I'm not believing it. I'm <laughs> just not. Well, you'd be hard pressed to convince James or I and thousands of others because we saw it. It happened. We witnessed it. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. We experienced it. And it was something none of us will ever forget. The same thing is true of the resurrection of Jesus. We have multiple examples of eyewitness accounts that though that they are 2,000 years old, are written down and are credible and are true. I'm telling you, hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive and spread the news everywhere that a crucified rabbi who claimed to be the Son of God came back to life. Now, don't just take the word of this Christian here who has been a believer of all of this since I was about 11 years old. I want you to hear this morning from a couple of guys. First of all, Jay Warner Wallace. He's the lead homicide detective in L.A. County. He's investigated some of our country's most heinous and hideous crimes. You may have seen him on NBC's Dateline or Fox News. And on those shows, he testified to the details surrounding the cold cases that he is known for solving. That's his forte, solving old, cold criminal cases. Well, for the first 35 years of Jay Warner Wallace's life, he was a committed atheist, not believing any of the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God. Until a close friend of his said, hey, why don't you take your investigative skills as a detective and apply them to the claims of the disciples of Jesus and what they had to say about his death and resurrection, just like you did with one of your cold cases, only older. That's exactly what Jay Warner Wallace did. And this one-time staunch atheist reached a very fascinating conclusion. Here's what he writes. Jurors evaluate evidential cases every day across our country. And they are asked to make a tough decision even though that they don't have every question answered or every possible detail explained. The standard of proof in most criminal trials is beyond reasonable doubt. Not beyond any possible doubt, but beyond reasonable doubt. He goes on to say, I have never conducted the perfect investigation. We've never presented the perfect case to a jury. But in my career as a cold case detective, I've never lost. And he concludes with this, when it comes to the case for God's existence, there is enough evidence. He said, well, okay, Jim, um, that, that's regarding maybe the one who created this world. But what does that have to do with uh, Jesus being the son of God and him being raised from the dead? Well, hold on. This one-time atheist goes on to write this. I'm not a Christian, a Jesus follower, because it works for me. I had a life prior to Christianity that seemed to be working just fine. And my life as a Christian hasn't always been easy. I'm a Christian because it's true. I'm a Christian because I want to live in a way that reflects truth in my life. I'm a Christian because my high regard for truth leaves me no alternative. Wow. I don't know how you hear that, but to me, that is a powerful testimony to the authenticity of the claims of Scripture about Jesus. Now, one other stunner 
It came from a trial lawyer by the name of Lionel Luckhu. Yep, that's actually his name, Luckhu. He is the Guinness World Book record holder for the most consecutive successful verdicts by a lawyer. And those verdicts came in one of the most challenging areas of law, defending those accused of murder. This man has seen to the acquittal of 245 murders, proving that his crime, in his crimes, his defendants were accused of, didn't happen. Let me say that again. This man has the record for successive trials that he won, 245 of them, in an arena murder where he saw the acquittal of his defendants for crimes that they did not do. Lionel was asked by a friend who was a believer to take his skills as an attorney and to apply them to the events surrounding the life of Jesus. And here's what he had to say. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof that leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Wow. I don't know about you, but that gives some serious added weight to the beliefs that I've had since I was 11 years old. For the moment, let's dismiss, though, the opinions of some very credible researchers and defenders of the truth. Let's dismiss all the historically documented eyewitness accounts. But at some point, you still have to deal with the millions of people whose lives have been radically changed by the reality of Jesus' love and presence in their lives, mine included. Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead. He's rescued and redeemed millions of lives full of darkness. How so? Well, let me try to illustrate it this way. One of my favorite things about Easter as a kid has always been the chocolate candies that come out every year in the shape of Easter's mascot, the Easter Bunny. Now, I would have opted for, I would have voted for the Easter puppy, okay? Or maybe the Easter squirrel, uh, but we're stuck with the bunny. And every year when we were smaller, on Easter morning, a chocolate bunny was placed in our cereal bowls at our place at the table, and we could eat it for breakfast. Well, 50 years later, they're still the same, in the sense that if you break one of these open, they're absolutely hollow inside. Now, my third grade teacher in Bible class one morning said, well, you know why they're hollow, don't you? You know why they're empty? It's because the tomb's empty. I didn't believe that then, and I don't believe that now. As a matter of fact, I would love for there to be something inside. Put some cream in it, put some jelly beans, put some sprayed cheese. Something inside's better than nothing. Here's a tie-in for me. There are a lot of people that we care deeply about who go through life feeling like this, empty. At some point in our existence, most of us look around the world and we look at the lives of other people and invariably someone is going to ask the question of themselves, is this really all that there is? Because something inside's better than nothing. Something has to matter more than the empty, superficial conversations and relationships that most of us give ourselves to. Well, can I tell you the only thing that I found to fill this place in my life? The only thing that gives meaning and purpose to the empty space of my heart? Three things. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus lives again. And for a purpose, to reverse a curse that invaded this planet the day that Adam and Eve decided they could run their own lives in this place better than the one who created it. A curse of darkness and death that invaded our lives that every day manifests itself in ways that harm and hurt each other and this planet. And Jesus couldn't bear to see those lives filled with darkness and death. And so he came personally, he came bodily, he came sacrificially to do something to reverse that curse. Let's make this absolutely practical. Every one of us has aspects of our lives that we wish we could change. 
And with them comes a cry of our soul that says, there's got to be more to life than this. And so church today, we're remembering the tomb is empty because there's a power that overcomes death and darkness in our lives that eradicates that emptiness. And through him opens up the promise and opportunity for light and life to fill our lives. And his name is Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we get to exchange who we are for who he is. Now, please hear me about this. Jesus didn't just die in your place. Jesus died to give you his place. And that's a huge gift. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. His life is now our life. You say, well, Jimmy, when does that start? Glad you asked. The moment we put our trust in believing that Jesus is the sacrifice for our failures and he's the hope of our future. That's when. And when that's demonstrated by us in an act of faith called baptism. Most of us are very familiar with what baptism is all about, or at least what it is. Here's what it's about. Paul reminds us in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, because this could happen, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Ah, oh, friend, the emptiness in your life doesn't have to have the last word when you believe that the tomb is empty and that it matters for your life, which is why the God of the universe is inviting you today to do two things, to believe and to become. God isn't asking you to lead a perfect life. He's certainly not asking you to perform some acts of penance to pay for your, your past failures. What he needs for you to do is trust him that my son lived for you, that my son died for you, and that he lives again for you. Now, some of you are thinking, well, no way me. Jimmy, you just have no idea of the choices that I've made and the things that I've done that nobody knows about. And as long as you have a say in it, we'll never know about it. Well, trust me, I'm broken too. And I know you are. And you may be feeling like you're too damaged, that, that there's nothing that, that could ever happen in your life that could repair what you have done in your life to bring about that brokenness. Well, Jesus says, I beg to differ. Through a cross and an empty tomb. Let me point you to a visual of how God sees that brokenness and what he wants to do with it. In Japan, they have an interesting form of art which embodies this restoration process of ceramics similar to how God restores a human life. It's called hintsugi. In our culture, when an expensive piece of pottery breaks, we may throw it away. But this process involves taking those broken pieces and delicately putting them back together again. And the adhesive that they use is interesting. The glue that they use actually is sprinkled with gold and silver dust in it. And they actually accentuate the breaks in the pottery, not try to hide them. Now, those of you who know art history understand that this has created some of the most valuable pottery literally in the world. Now, I read that this week and I thought, that's exactly what God wants to do with all of us. He wants to take those broken, damaged areas of our lives that we want to hide from the world, and he wants to highlight them to show people what he's capable of restoring. And so he takes your brokenness, friend, and he takes mine, that seeming worthless brokenness in our lives, and he transforms it into something beautiful and valuable to him. Please, don't miss this detail of Jesus' resurrection. And that is when he walked out of the tomb, his scars came with him. Why? I mean, certainly a man who could turn blind eyes into seeing and lame legs into walking 
and deaf ears and to hearing could handle a few scars, right? Yeah, he could. But he kept them. Because he knew his scars of brokenness in the right setting and at the right time could help transform a doubter into a believer. He did that for Thomas. Remember, we read this a few moments ago. Put your finger here, Jesus said. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound of my side. And don't be faithless anymore. Believe. And Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you see me. But blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And I hope some of you have heard something in the lesson this morning that has deepened your belief that Jesus really is who he claims to be. Or that maybe, just maybe, it sparks some belief in you. I promise you, Jesus will take that little belief and turn it into a blazing fire if you'll let him. And he will enable you to become all that God's designed and dreamed for you to be. That's what he's called us to, remember, to believe and to become. Now, if today is the first of that spark occurring in your heart and you say, all right, count me in, and you want to be baptized like we've talked about today and all the meaning that it has about you sharing in his death and also sharing in his resurrection, well, we can get that done today. Now, we may be wearing masks and some gloves and doing our best to keep social distancing as much as we possibly can, but we're going to set that aside. If you want to join forces with this God and this Savior, that's a faith that goes public. And that's still very uncommon in this world today. But who in the world wants to live common anyway? Let's pray. Father, this is a, a challenge for all of us, uh, for the speaker, and I know sometimes for the hearer. But we pray that your truth and your word makes its way into our hearts and our minds today. To be honest, we, we struggle with doubt. Sometimes we, we wish we could see more and hear more that would give evidence beyond the tomb, beyond the eyewitnesses that we have a chance to read of. And yet we see that. We hear it in testimonies from other people. We've seen it in our own lives. And so I'm just asking today, would you bring the remembrance of all of that to our hearts? And once again, help us commit to sharing this message with any and every person that you put in front of us. Father, you're the one who said that your son's the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to you except through him. Help us to take that and, and take the uh, significance of all of that and let it stir our hearts to not only receive the benefits of it, but to share the benefits of it with anyone who will listen to how your story has made a difference in our story. We ask us humbly in Jesus' name and everyone say amen.